What I find most interesting in Daniel is actually the, uh, you know, the, the Hebrew and the Aramaic, and sometimes things are going on in Hebrew and Aramaic that don't always come through uh, in English. So it's kind of interesting, and I think that we might uh, find it rather fascinating. Also, the way that the chapters are laid out, uh, uh, there's interesting things taking place. For example, let's face it, I said this, I think, in the very first uh, 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 message on this, that when we think of Daniel, we think of, oh, uh, you know, dare to be a Daniel and all that, and uh, like Sunday school type thinking, you know, the stories, uh, and, or we're just knee deep in the, uh, in the granular uh, aspects of uh, end time prophecy, of who's attacking who and when, you know? But there's so much, we miss the point oftentimes, actually, of the book of Daniel. The point of, of uh, the, the, the reign of God and how uh, even in the midst of really bad empires and bad leaders, and, that God is actually involved. And then when you wear your, the glasses that where you, you, know, you can, um, you know, the x-ray vision, right? Remember that, you know? You can see everything going on. It's like you can wear the glasses of spirituality and see that God is involved in everything going on in a very bad situation, in a hopeless time. This is really, I mean, horizontally a hopeless time. This is a time in the history of Israel where people have been displaced, when there's no longer a nation. Imagine if we were all herded out of the United States and there was no place called the United States anymore. Now we're living somewhere else, probably separated from relatives and family and everything else. Horrible. Uh, we look back on this because we're separated by so many years and the story has become so institutionalized that frankly, it's hard to think of them as real people undergoing like tragic situations and great anxiety and difficulty. You know, that's what happens after a while about history. You know, it becomes sort of, uh, uh, it's relegated to the classroom and, and so on. Uh, that's why sometimes it's hard to analyze events in the near past because it's too, we say, what do we say? It's too close, you know, because we experienced it or our parents or grandparents experienced it. Frankly, it's kind of like the Holocaust in relationship to the uh, displacement of Jews here. Now, it wasn't, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to think that what happened in the more sophisticated uh, recent history was actually more barbaric than here. <laughs> but, it, but that's the truth. But still you had thousands and thousands of Jews who were murdered and killed and displaced, and, but we don't usually think of it and think of that here because it's so far away uh, in history. So when we look at Daniel, we have to kind of keep that in mind, and you have to remember that Daniel was a youth. Now, I did say last week, that uh, a youth in Daniel's day is different than a youth today, most definitely. Someone who's 14 or 15 today uh, is not nearly the same thing as someone who was 14 or 15 then. Then they were an adult. They were basically an adult. But you see, the text goes out of its way to refer to Daniel as a youth. And so that's like a sign to us that we're supposed to get that throughout uh, this, these passages. 
And there's something else about Daniel that we kind of have said, but uh, I didn't say uh, as directly perhaps as I should, and that is Daniel is not a prophet. When we talk about the book of Daniel, we, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, in your, uh, the Bible that you have, probably, he is in the prophets, right? But of course, you know, in uh, the Jewish uh, Bible, the Eng- even an English Jewish Bible from a Jewish publishing company, you know, uh, Daniel is toward the end of the, is, he's in there with the Psalms, <laughs> you know, he's, it's toward the end. Daniel is toward the very end of the Bible separated from Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of that. And the book of Daniel is not even considered a, um, a book of the prophets, even though it contains prophecy. And one reason for that may be, in fact, that Daniel was not a prophet. You don't read here about Daniel being a prophet. Daniel was a youth who was educated um, uh, in Babylon and understood the literature and the language of the Babylonians. Uh, and we'll see in uh, chapter 2, he's considered a wise man uh, of Babylon, but he's not a prophet of Israel. He doesn't say, woe un- unto you, uh, Babylonians, or, or woe unto you, Israelites. Uh, and, or, and unlike Habakkuk, who, who is a very interesting figure, who is a prophet, but, but uh, his uh, prophecy is much more in the realm of wisdom literature, you're reading there his personal testimony of wondering why God isn't doing something about both the internal and external sin going on. Uh, yet, uh, in the second chapter, it's quite clear uh, that he is functioning as a prophet and forecasting you know, uh, the, the doom of the Babylonians and so on. You don't see that from Daniel. Daniel is a civil servant who dreamed dreams in the second half of the book. Uh, and in the first half of the book, uh, we see how he negotiates uh, his life in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, uh, being a deeply spiritual man, uh, not compromising and uh, testifying of the reality and the power of God, but not as a prophet. So Daniel is a very interesting, uh, very interesting person, unlike Ezra, unlike Nehemiah. Unlike the prophets, uh, Daniel, that's why we can relate so much to Daniel. Because Daniel is a, is a, uh, is a Jewish man living in a diaspora. He's not a, uh, uh, an ancient prophet living in the diaspora. He's a Jewish man. He's a religious Jewish man who's been displaced, whom God has his hand on. And so that's why there's a lot that we can learn from Daniel's life. Unlike many other figures in the scriptures, we can, we can really relate to him, you see, on that level. Okay? Joseph, of course, is another one. And uh, there's a lot that is written about the relationship of Joseph and Daniel. And you see it certainly in the second chapter. The second chapter of the book of Daniel is similar, in the, the story is similar to the 41st chapter of Genesis when Pharaoh has a dream and he can't interpret it, and, and then uh, Joseph comes and interprets the dream. It's similar. It's not the same. There's a number of differences uh, there, but that's not really our, our focus, the difference between Joseph and Daniel, but what's going on here with Daniel. So let's now take a look. Now, in the first chapter, 
the first chapter basically introduced us to Daniel and his friends, introduced us to uh, the kind of person Daniel was. And remember, very importantly, in verse 8 of chapter 1, he set his heart not to defile God. So he enters into every situation with the presupposition that I'm not going to defile uh, my relationship with God. Okay, Regardless of what he's called to be or do in life or serve at the pleasure of the king, he will not, he will not defile God. And it's very interesting here now how uh, he uh, brings glory to God uh, in uh, learning the language, learning the, uh, the literature, and now being considered uh, in the, the court of Nebuchadnezzar. All right, now it says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, this is in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Literally, it says, he dreamt dreams. Okay? And his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. So evidently, Nebuchadnezzar didn't just have like a bad dream one night. That he consistently, he dreamt dreams. He had dreams that troubled him. Now, what do we usually call dreams that trouble us? We call them nightmares, right? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had these nightmares that he could not, uh, he could not understand, and he was troubled by him, right? His, uh, his being, his spirit was troubled, and he couldn't sleep, all right? Okay, now it says, Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians and the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. These were considered the wise men uh, uh, who could tell mysteries and who could uh, do magic and, uh, and, and things of that nature. Okay, uh, And so they come and uh, the king says to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Okay, So, uh, he knows he had this dream, uh, and uh, he has trouble understanding the dream. Now, a question that we could ask ourselves here over and over again, it, it could come up in different places in this chapter, uh, is, where did this dream come from? And what is this dream all about? And why is he so worried about it? You know, it's one thing to have a bad dream. Everybody has bad dreams, right? Some from time to time in life. But evidently, for Nebuchadnezzar, this was a particularly troubling dream. And he must have an understanding of it. Okay? Now, in verse 4, Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. And here's where the text changes from Hebrew to Aramaic. And if you have a Hebrew text, you, uh, you look at it, and a, and a terse reading, a, a quick reading of it, you'll say, it looks the same to me. But if you look at it carefully, what you end up seeing, beginning in uh, chapter 4, and this is what I will show you this next week, I'll, I'll put it up, and that is, you see an inordinate number of olives at the end of words. And the reason... When you read it, you can tell when something is Aramaic that there is an inordinate number of olives at the end of words. Most Hebrew words don't end at olive. 
right? But once you start seeing Aramaic, boom, 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 boom. And the reason for that is that the Aleph, generally speaking, the Aleph at the end of a word in Aramaic functions just like a hey prefix on Hebrew words. What is a he? Marcy, don't answer the question. What, what does a hey prefix represent in Hebrew? The, right? Often that mostly. The, right? That's what the aleph suffix at the end of Aramaic words often represent. So that's interesting, you know? Uh, the letters look the same, but uh, the grammar and the syntax especially uh, uh, is a little bit different. And so I know that you're just going to be excited about that kind of thing. I just know it, right? Okay. So uh, the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Now, you know, that's kind of interesting, by the way, that it says that right there. Uh, because the way you read this whole chapter, you could come to the conclusion that there's a little satire in that. O king, live forever. When what we see at the end of the dream, or at the end of the chapter, is the interpretation of the dream is that Nebuchadnezzar is not going to live forever. Uh, nor is his kingdom going to last forever. But at this point, we see live forever, which was a, a, a traditional uh, a greeting to a sovereign, you know, that, that you would give, right? So, it's, so he says, Tell the dream, so they say, tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. That is a very natural thing to say, right? Tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it meant. My guess is, is they were used to this kind of thing. You know, interpreting dreams. This would be like uh, the meat and potatoes of uh, uh, sages in these, uh, you know, in these foreign uh, uh, nations and religions, right? The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. What about that don't you understand? You know? Okay? All right. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Okay. Now, they answer him again, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare its interpretation. In other words, it's preposterous for you to ask us to tell you the dream itself, because that, that would be impossible. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare it to me its interpretation. Now, there is some discussion among interpreters whether, whether uh, Nebuchadnezzar has forgotten the dream and he doesn't even know the dream. That may be. That may be. However, one of the things we know is, is that he knows he had a dream. And he knows that it's a, a bad dream. He knows a lot about this dream. He knows he had one. He knows it's bad. He knows he needs to know the, he needs to understand it. Okay? So, some say that uh, uh, he has forgotten the dream and uh, he needs to, they need to tell him the dream. Others would say that 
He knows the dream, but he's testing them because he really needs the right interpretation of this dream and that he knows that they could say anything. Okay? Okay. Very good. Now, the Chaldeans, you can just imagine them kind of looking at themselves. Like, this is quite a revolting development. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter to the king. Okay? Uh, Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or, uh, or Chaldean. In other words, they say to the king, This is impossible. This is impossible. You are asking us beyond the realm, uh, to do something beyond the realm of possibility. Okay? Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Now that tells us a little bit of, tells us a little bit of something into their theology. Okay? It tells us that while they can bow down to the gods, while they uh, can maybe in their own minds receive power from the gods, they themselves evidently cannot communicate with these gods. Because if the gods know the answer, and they're the sages, and it's impossible, then they don't get the wisdom from the gods. They're far off. And it is impossible, therefore, for these conjurers and magicians and sages to help the king, to give the king what he needs. Now, the king is desperate. The king is desperate because, evidently, to have a dream that is a a troubling dream and to have no interpretation was understood as a judgment upon him. That having this dream, he is the sovereign. What does he have to be afraid of? But evidently, there was something about this dream that he does, that, that troubles him so much that he is a desperate man and he must have the answer to it. So much so that he threatens the lives of all the wise men in Babylon. So in verse 12, we read, Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So we see his frustration and his anxiety. Uh, We see his desperation that he must have an answer to what this dream is. And that is, again, it is interesting to remember he is the sovereign. He is the all-powerful king. Yet, in some way, we see a great weakness in the king. We see evidently some kind of great insecurity in this king, that he must have an interpretation of this dream. Okay? It, It troubles him so much. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Now, isn't that interesting? That gives us another little tidbit of information, that Daniel and his friends were considered wise men of Babylon but evidently uh, maybe a lower class wise men of Babylon because they were, the, they were not the ones initially brought in. They're not the magicians, the conjurers, and the Chaldeans. They're the exiles. They were considered wise men of Babylon because 
they too were going to uh, be, uh, be killed. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. Now, discretion and discernment. Prudent judgment be another way to translate that. Prudent judgment. In Aramaic, it's kind of like a, um, the words rhyme. They're not the same words, but they rhyme. And it's, a, it's a, a, a sort of a little saying, you might say. But prudent judgment. Daniel was a smart man. Daniel sees here, kind of like in chapter 1, that, okay, I'm in this situation. Now, I'm going to not just start saying, Woe unto you, Chaldeans! But with discretion and discernment, he speaks to this fellow Arioch. Okay? He answered and said to Arioch, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Okay? So he doesn't ask what happened. He doesn't ask what's wrong with the king or how come the king's going to kill everybody uh, as if to question the king. But he wants to know what's so urgent. It's wise. Now, Daniel is going to find out. So Daniel went in and requested of the king. So it's interesting. He has access to the king, or at least to the spokesperson for the king, that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Now, this is interesting. Daniel doesn't question... Uh, the issue about, tell me the dream. He doesn't say, how can anybody know? How can anybody say the dream? It's impossible. It's true in the text that he says he'll give him an interpretation. But as we'll see, he's going to know the, the dream and the interpretation. Perhaps Daniel thought of it all as just one thing. Obviously, if you're going to know the interpretation to the dream, you've got to know what the dream is. And so, uh, Daniel does not question the king anywhere in that he does not question Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? Again, he yields to the authorities over him. Now, in verse 17, Then Daniel went into his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, Azariah, about the matter, in order that they might request compassion from God, from the God of heaven, concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of of the wise men of Babylon. So this is very interesting. Uh, several things are taking place uh, here. One is, okay, Daniel now knows the situation, and Daniel does not uh, have the understanding that this is impossible, that the gods know, or that God knows, you know, the God of Israel, Hashem knows, what am I going to do? No. He goes, first he goes, to his friends. And notice, very importantly, that their names are written in uh, Hebrew here, okay? Or written out in Aramaic, but the Hebrew names, okay? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So he goes to them. So last Tuesday night in our Chavarag group, we were talking uh, about this, and, uh, uh, and so uh, Randy just made a wonderful uh, observation two weeks ago when he filled in for me, and then last week, that he goes to the Chavura group. He brings it to the Chavura, right, to pray. 
He doesn't just pray by himself. He's not a lone ranger. Isn't it that interesting that not only here, but throughout these chapters of these exploits of Daniel, it's never just Daniel. It's Daniel and his friends. And so Daniel, he doesn't just pray, he goes to his friends and pray. And what a, needless to say, what a uh, lesson that is for us, right? Do you know, uh, you know, in the Brit Hadashah, there are many, many passages that uh, speak about engaging each other with the, with the, in English, one another, one another, one another, one another, one another, one another, one, there's like over 50 different ones. Uh, one another, one another, right? And so we are not called to be lone rangers. Never are we called, even here, uh, uh, this uh, spiritual man living in Babylon, serving the king, knew that he, uh, he should pray with other like-minded uh, uh, people, followers of the God of Israel, believers in the God of Israel, other, other Jewish men. And so that is true for us. And you know, you see illustrations of this in lots of places. You know, in the book of Acts, you see an illustration of this. You see it at several places, but in Acts, in the fourth chapter, I'll just read this uh, one, one little uh, uh, part here, right? In um, verse 19 of Acts 4, okay? But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which they might punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Then in verse 23, And when they had been released, they went to their own companions, or their own and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God in one accord. Uh, o Lord, it is thou who didst make the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And so on and so forth. The point being is that they went to their companions. They shared this with others. And then they all praised God. And so that is what Daniel does. And I would encourage all of us uh, uh, to pray with others that when uh, there is an issue in our lives, that uh, we don't uh, live, as it were, on an island all by ourselves, but that we pray with others. That means uh, having fellowship with others. Uh, that means uh, e either uh, if it's something that can be shared uh, with lots of people, we can send out an email, or you put it on our uh, prayer request, or you can send an email and say, oh, I, I would like the elders to pray about something. That happens a lot. Uh, or, or the best of all, hold on to your seats, just get in touch with someone you know and pray with them. You know, when people say, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, I, I feel like there's nothing for me to do here, right? People say that. Maybe you think that. Okay, that's spelled T-S-K, for those of you taking notes, okay? Uh, all right, uh, that's a shame that you would think so institutionalized, think of so institutionally, that if the only thing you can do is be on a committee, or be a greeter, or be on an egg team, those are great things, 
But those are not primary things. Do you know that? How could I say so? I'm going to get an email from many in our leadership. How can you say that's not a primary thing? It's because it's not. What is primary is things like praying with one another and, and, and building up one another and caring for one another and, and giving somebody a ride to services, even if it's not on your way. Oh, I never thought of that. Wow. Those things are primary. You know, there's the trellis and there's the vine, right? You need the trellis. You need the, uh, the uh, institution to build the vine. You need it for, for people to be able to come and grow and have access to different things. But without a strong vine, it's just a painted piece of wood stuck in the ground. And let that be a lesson to us. Daniel goes and he prays with his friends. Now, the reason he prays, isn't it interesting here? It's, it's kind of, Daniel, it doesn't say, and Daniel prayed so that he would be able to glorify God by telling the king his dream. It's not what it says. It says, in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends might not, be, might not die, might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Okay? So what they're really praying for is mercy from God so they won't die. Give us the answer so we won't die. So that's very interesting that they pray. They're, they, these are, you know, uh, real people. They pray that they would be able to have an answer to this so that uh, they're not killed with the rest of the Chaldeans. And in doing so, God blesses them and saves them and they can testify of this great truth before the king. And so anytime that we pray for our own well-being in such a way, we should keep that in mind, that the ultimate goal is not the, my own personal welfare. They pray, God, spare us, show us compassion. Let us know the answer to this so that we don't die with the rest of the Chaldeans. But isn't it interesting that the thrust of the whole thing, except for that, that line, the thrust of the entire passage is the glory of God and the fact that, that uh, Daniel will be able to testify before Nebuchadnezzar of the wisdom and the power of the God of Israel. And so what's really true about this is that even though Daniel, as it says, they prayed this way, it really wasn't about them. It really wasn't about their, uh, their own personal lives and just them being able to uh, not be killed with the rest of the, uh, with the purge of the wise men of Babylon, but that God has bigger things in mind for them than even perhaps what they might have had in mind. Okay? And so, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Okay? So interesting, he has a, this night vision. Daniel has a dream, evidently. And he, uh, and the understanding of the, uh, of the dream, he, he knows the dream and he knows the interpretation. So it's kind of interesting when you compare at this point Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream he cannot understand. He doesn't understand the dream. He doesn't understand the interpretation. He's angry. He's frustrated. He's got to know it. He's a desperate man. 
Daniel has a night vision and he understands the whole thing. God is not so far off that he does not communicate. God is not so far off at all that uh, we are stuck here by ourselves and that yes, there is a God in heaven who is, who is indeed all powerful and who can control everything, but that leaves us here to our own ways of doing things. But he does indeed communicate with us. We'll come back to that thought in a minute. So Daniel answered and said, and here now you have this prayer of Daniel. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, uh, it's one of these prayers that, wow, I didn't know there was a prayer. I thought chapter 2 was just about the statue, right? But isn't it interesting? Uh, uh, there's this great little prayer. Someone once wrote an article called um, the, the Prayers of Daniel something in, in a sea. The, the prayers of Daniel in a sea of prose. <laughs> in other words, it's surrounded by narrative, you know? And stuck in the middle is this poem. And so if you've taken, you know, one of our MSI classes on the Torah, the, the prophets, one, prophets, two, the wisdom literature, any of it, you know that, huh, you got to ask yourself, why doesn't it just say, and he gave thanks to God? And then just move on. But it doesn't. It tells us the prayer, Okay. So it tells us the prayer, meaning that we need to learn something from this prayer. And uh, you can tell that it's a poetry. It's also written as poetry. That's how, you know, in your Bible, it's indented, right? Probably. Verses uh, 20, 21, 22, and 23. It's almost like a pause in the story. The story's moving rather quickly. And now there's a pause in the story. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. Now you'll notice in verse 20, 21, and 22, uh, God is being spoken of in the third person, okay? So it's like, this is like a message to us. This is like uh, like in the Psalms, you know? Uh, Let the name of the Lord be praised, that it's not always speaking to God, sometimes speaking about God, so that we might... Be reminded and give thanks and praise ourselves. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. Very similar to traditional Jewish prayer of today. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. Right? Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. Wisdom and power belongs to him. Now this makes sense in what Daniel prayed because Daniel received wisdom from God. He did not know this mystery. He did not know this secret thing. But God indeed did reveal it to him. And it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He's giving hints here. He understands his dream and he understands its interpretation. And and we can see without even learning about the dream yet that Daniel uh, understands what's going on. He understands that God actually gave Nebuchadnezzar this troubling dream to communicate with Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar could not communicate with God as Daniel could. And that Daniel now basically sees the dream, has a night vision, sees the dream, understands, can articulate the dream, and interpret the dream. And his response is to praise God for, for it. He gives wisdom to wise men. 
and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. Now, in verse 23, he speaks to God in the, first per- in the second person, you, right? You. Is that the second, right? Did I get that right? Yeah. All right? Uh, he speaks directly to God because of what he himself now has had. He learns this great truth about God, and so he proclaims it, but now he, give th- he gives thanks specifically for what he ha- how God has blessed him in explaining to him this dream. To you, O God of my fathers, very um, Deuteronomic there, the God of my fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? I give thanks and praise for thou or you have given me wisdom and given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. All right. So what we see here is uh, uh, God has indeed given Daniel uh, this knowledge. Okay? So one of the great lessons here uh, uh, that we learn, yes, God indeed reveals truths to his people. It reminds me, even before going to the Brit Hadashah, that Amos mentions this in the third chapter. Okay? In Amos chapter 3, God is sad that the people, uh, you only have I chosen among all the peoples of the earth, yet look what you've done to yourselves, basically is what he says. Right? Uh, But he says in verse 7, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Okay? Surely the Lord, and this is in verse 7 of Amos chapter 3, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. And so we see here that Daniel may indeed be functioning as a prophet, although he was not real, did not understand himself being a prophet, but God does indeed reveal that to him, right? Now, when Yeshua comes in Matthew chapter 12, he says something very interesting about wisdom. And oftentimes it's missed. In Matthew chapter 12, in verse 42, well, let's go back, verse 38, verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, the man of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation and the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He says all that to say something greater than Jonah is here. All right. Now in verse 42, he adds another, another little thing about something greater is here. The queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. 
Now, while it is true that Yeshua is the king and he's a greater king than Solomon, when you read uh, uh, the passage about the queen of the south, she's coming to obtain wisdom. That's the, what it is that she's looking for, wisdom, okay? And something greater than Solomon is here. Yes, Yeshua is the king, but he's not simply saying, I'm the king. He is the greater wisdom than the queen of the... He's greater in every capacity. But he does mention here in Matthew chapter 12 that she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and something greater is here than Solomon because Yeshua is indeed the wisdom of God as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in the Brit Chadashah, in verse 24, oh, I always do this, don't I? Oh, let's go back to verse 23. We preach Messiah crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Messiah, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He is indeed the wisdom of God. And there is a whole wisdom Christology that, you know, uh, that, that people uh, talk about, that uh, in his incarnation, he is the incarnation of the wisdom of God, in that he is indeed identified with Hashem, with the God of Israel, who is all wisdom. And so Yeshua is all wisdom. And so... Uh, it makes sense then when you come to the first chapter of James that we have this great assurance. If any of you lack wis lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives it to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him but let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Okay? Uh, let's stop there. The point being is we can ask of God and ask in confidence. When Daniel asked for this wisdom, he asked in confidence. And God is indeed the God of all wisdom. And so... When we need wisdom, let us come and to others and, and share that and let us pray together uh, for wisdom. You see, that's the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. And that is the difference between every form of God and faith and uh, 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 trusting in Messiah Yeshua. That he is not far off and we have an assurance. Now, we may not be called to such a magnanimous issue, uh, you know, that uh, Nebuch dealing with the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, but we have all kinds of things in our lives that we just never go to God with, that we never pray, and we, we don't pray for wisdom. And like we said last time, that isn't it interesting? God knows everything about every discipline that there is. And so if you need wisdom in your job, pray for wisdom. Pray for understanding. It's not just wisdom about, you know, Bible doctrine or things in the Bible, but about everything. And isn't it wonderful that, that it says in James that he gives generously? 
Uh, and, and it's not something, you know, never worry that God is going to say, oh, not you again. How many times do we have to go over this? No, God will give you wisdom. But you see, the thing about Daniel is, Daniel wasn't just some guy who grew up with a tradition and then now his life is in danger and he has to muster up some form of spirituality. He hasn't prayed in about 10 years, but now his life's in danger. Now, Lord, I'll do anything, right? That's not Daniel. Daniel had already purposed in his heart who he was. He had already purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He came into the situation walking with the Lord, as we would say. He came into the situation a man of prayer, a man of devotion, God's man for the hour, so to speak, you see. And you see, this is what God can do for you and me in your, in your, life, in your job, in your whatever, wherever you might be, that if you are a person who really knows the Lord, do not think of that there is this separation of, of my faith and my work. There's a separation between faith and my home life. There's a separation between faith and my schooling. Even though I might be going to school uh, to be a doctor or to be a plumber or to be a mechanic, that no, you come as a person full of the Ruach HaKodesh and, and you pray, Lord, help me to understand what I'm studying. Help me to understand my job. Because you see, one of the things we're going to learn here about Daniel is Daniel excelled at what he did. But it wasn't just because he was smart or that he was good with his hands or something. Uh, it was because he was a man of God. He was a man of faith. He was a man of prayer. And so we can learn Daniel lived in the diaspora and excelled as a spiritual, uh, as a spiritual man. And so uh, he has the answer. And he prays, God gives it to him, he gives thanks to God, and may I suggest that this prayer is a centerpiece of this chapter. That in the centerpiece of this chapter, we see that God is all wisdom, God is all power, God is the source, no matter what situation we might find ourselves in. Now next week, we will see now how Daniel will now interact with the king, and while at the beginning Daniel might have thought, Lord, help us not to die, we see now that Daniel, by interacting with God, recognizes that something far greater than his own personal well-being is going on, and God has great plans uh, for him. All right? And God has, in the very same way, you know, uh, like we read in the Brit Chadashah, when we trust God in small things, God will bless us in larger things. And God wants to use each and every one of us in significant ways in this world so that the world may see who Yeshua is. Do not underestimate whatever you're doing in your job. Do not underestimate whatever you're doing with, you know, in your neighborhood or friends or school. God wants to use you right where you are as you purpose in your heart to serve him. He will indeed use you, and you will indeed be a blessing. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you that Daniel was taken from his land 
taken from his family, was indoctrinated in the ways of the pagan Chaldeans, yet at the very same way, uh, yet at the very same time, uh, he glorifies you and is being used by you in marvelous ways. Why? Because as we saw, he knows where to draw the lines. And he knows uh, 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 to be a praying man in the midst of great crisis and difficulty. And he knows that he's not in it alone, and he prays with his friends. And Lord, thank you, God, that in his answer to prayer, you indeed bless us, that we know that you are indeed all power and you are indeed all wisdom. And Lord, we do indeed pray for wisdom. We pray for wisdom today, Lord, that you would help us to know how to negotiate this culture, to know where to draw our lines, to know when to speak out, when not to, when it's simply being obnoxious or arrogant or really making a difference. Lord, we need that wisdom. And God, we pray as a community that you would indeed give us that wisdom. And Lord, we pray with the assurance of knowing that you indeed hear our prayer. And uh, as we listen to you, Lord, you will indeed give us that wisdom. And we thank you. You have not left us here to our own ways. We thank you in Messiah's name.